Welcome to The Owl Hoot, a podcast for the environmentally curious, with me, Caroline Norbury. On each episode, I chat with a guest who contributes in some way to protecting the planet on matters of climate change, sustainability, biodiversity and pollution. Here is a place where you can gain new knowledge and be inspired. Enjoy listening. Tom Hartland-Smith is a Senior Catchment Restoration Officer with the Seven Rivers Trust, a charity aiming to protect and enhance the River Seven to benefit people and nature. The River Seven is the longest of approximately 1,500 rivers in the UK, spanning England and Wales. Tom joined the Trust in 2020 and has worked with the conservation sector for over 15 years, having previously studied ecology and environmental management at university. I am delighted Tom joins me on the podcast to talk about the trust and his work. So Tom, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, hi Caroline, thanks for having me. You are very welcome. It would be great to know a little bit about you, Tom. So tell me about how you came to embark on a career in restoration and conservation. Okay, it's uh, it's, it's an interesting tale really. Um, it all started out back when I was at college sort of around the Hales Owen area uh, in the Midlands. And I really actually wanted to do engineering, but at the time I didn't get enough good grades um, to get into the sort of physics that was required for it. And that quickly pushed me into biology. And when I met the teacher there, they had a really big impact on me. I really got into sort of uh, that sector of work. Um, And that sort of was the beginning of my journey all the way through to my current day conservation career. I sort of went on to do ecology and environmental management at the uh, Nottingham Trent University, which was really informative. Um, And one of the key things that really got me into the sector there was I did a placement year with Birmingham Black Country Wildlife Trust. um, And that was my first work posting following the university. They phoned me up. I was very, very fortunate where they offered me a role. I worked with them for around 11 years. And then during um, COVID-19, I was unfortunate to be made redundant. And that was the beginning of my career with the Seven Ribs Trust. And it was a bit of a gear shift to go from sort of land-based conservation um, and reserves management into having to really focus on riparian issues, rivers, everything encompassed with them. Um, So that, that was sort of like the beginnings of my journey to how I got to where I am now. Lovely. Well, that gives a bit a sense of who you are and how you've got to where you are. You mentioned there the word riparian, which is a lovely word. Can you perhaps, before we even get into rivers and the Seven Rivers, rivers Trust, what riparian means? Yeah, so riparian is sort of the whole encompassing term that, that is an environment along a river. Um, so it can be sort of like the marginal woodlands, the grasslands that are joined to it anything that is connected within that sort of floodplain zone, so where the river spills out and there's a lot of water, and the habitats within the river channel itself. Um, so whether that's a pool sequence, riffle. And so it, it's sort of like a collective term we use when when we're sort of trying to describe any works that we're doing on the river. We'll just go, oh, riparian. <laughs> Excellent. Right, got that straight. Thank you. So tell me a little bit then, what does the Seven Rivers Trust cover in terms of its breadth is it how how far and wide is the river for example and where where does it situate 
right okay well um the the river sort of spawns if you will uh, comes to comes onto the land up in the sort of mountains of northwest wales um i i commonly always think of that old sort of image you have of the uk as the sort of witch riding a pig and obviously the head the head of wales it's sort of around by where the eye would be on wales where the seven the seven comes out of the ground flows all the way through the, the sort of north of wales um crosses down to sort of around Shrewsbury, the Midlands, uh, past Worcester, Gloucestershire, and then obviously out into the Severn Estuary. The river's roughly 220 miles long, making it the UK's longest river. And obviously up at the top, you can just hop across the river. It's, it's, it's barely there. And then obviously down towards the estuary, it's, uh, it, it can be substantially wider than that. So yeah, it's an, it's an enormous river. <laughs> In, in effect, um, and it has lots of habitats along that, of which are vitally important for, you know, UK wildlife and species. I get it. And in terms of what the Rivers Trust was set up to do, what, what is its main objective in relation to the river? The Rivers Trust um, and the Seven Rivers Trust in particular was set up in 2008. And originally its sort of key focus is for improving habitats along the river to make it originally better for fishing. But whereas now that focus has sort of expanded into a wider conservation focus. So it'll include things such as management of floodwaters, um, improving the water quality coming into the river, educating people, getting people involved in conservation efforts to improve that watercourse wherever possible. It's a changing and evolving charity. And at the moment, it's in the strongest position it's been, obviously, since its inception in, in 2008. We're, we're one of uh, a number of rivers trusts across across the England and Wales, and I think there's a couple in Scotland. And effectively, we're governed by the, the rivers trust as like an overarching organisation, and they sort of help provide a key focus as well in terms of political campaigning and making sure we get the best for our rivers. Okay. Interesting that they that you said it started off with fishing. I hadn't appreciated where it began. And exciting that it's it's evolving in the way that it is. What then is the most you know, why are rivers important? Why do we need trusts? What what's going on there? I suppose the key part is water's the lifeblood of all life. Um, and without without that sort of critical key freshwater habitat uh, being in a healthy state, everything else on the land is going to suffer. Um, so focusing on improving the quality that's within that water is, is basically the fundamental vital uh, element that we focus on and getting people to come in and support that work is where we, we thrive really. Have I answered that question? That's the key part there, Caroline. (laughs) (laughs) You've given me a great lead in for where I wanted to go with this. So that's perfect. Thank you. Because you mentioned there healthy river, which is obviously what we all want. But what does a healthy river look like? How do we know it's healthy? There's a number of ways we can check that a a river's healthy. Firstly, it's through the animals and the wildlife that are utilising that environment. Um, so if you get really good uh, fish populations within the water, we know that that water is healthy. We can monitor that through the sort of 
the small insects that live in the water as well. We call it macroinvertebrate monitoring, and that can help us identify if there's been any sort of pollution event that has passed through the river. And also we can go into sort of a little bit more in depth with sort of monitoring of oxygen concentrations um, and chemical analysis of the water. But on the most part, you can get a good feel of how a river is from just the sort of look of the landscape. Um, so there's sort of three key things you want with a river. First is obviously good water quality. Then there's the sort of water quantity and then avail available habitat on that river. So I always like to think of it as a stool with three legs. And if you remove one of those legs or upset one of those legs, then that stool topples over. So whenever I go out onto a catchment, which is an area of which, you know, obviously the, the rainwater falls and fall, falls within to that one river basin, I'll look at that area and go, right, is the water of a good quality? Yes. Okay, so what's upsetting the balance here? Oh, right, so there's, is it quantity? So I do a lot of work in urban areas. You can walk up to a stream and you're thinking, oh, that's, that looks nice. But then if you catch it when there's a rainwater event happening, like such as bad weather rain, um, all of a sudden that river can rise exponentially and you've got too much water. So actually too much water can be an issue for a river as well because it can pull all of the juvenile fish out, scour the riverbed, which is sort of disturbing all that gravel and, the, and, and can damage the plants that are trying to live within that environment. And also, in a, in, again, as I say, I work a lot in urban areas, a lack of available habitat could be a big issue as well. So the river's been constrained by urbanisation. Uh, it's been put into a channel. There might not be any of that sort of deadwood habitat that's required or little backwaters and, and refuge somewhere where the, the small the small fish or macroinvertebrates can survive those those sort of long events of well flash events in effect as well. So yeah, those are those are the three key elements I always look for when going out into a catchment. And when you look into the water, you're talking about whether it looks okay. If you can see the bottom of the riverbed, is that a good sign or is that a bad sign? If you can see the bottom of the riverbed, that's it. That's more of an indication that there's not a lot of suspended solids within the, within the water column. That doesn't necessarily mean that the environment is a healthy environment, um, because a lot of chemicals that are within water are not visible. Being able to see through the water is just, as I say, that indication that there's not sort of like fine clay particles or soil that's being lifted as it's moved through. A good example of that would be if you were to look at chalk streams uh, down on the south and the, the sort of, what would it be, the east coast of the, of the UK. A lot of that water comes up through a chalk aquifer uh, and, the, and the river is fed basically by what we call base flow and from that, that, that sort of water source from groundwater. That water is crystal clear, but if something occurs on land, and that water then gets affected flowing into the river, um, say by poor farming practice like a pesticide coming in, that water can still be unhealthy, but would be gin clear. It would be you know beautiful to look through. On the River Seven catchment, a lot more you get a lot more sort of um, the geology of the catchment's a lot more sort of like uh, sandstone and clay um, because of the last ice age and, and where we're located. Um, so you get a lot more suspended sort of, uh, like sort of solids within the water anyway, or sediments. 
Yeah, I, I guessed it was going to be quite nuanced as to location and and as you as you say about the chemicals that you can't actually see that are just blitzing everything. You talked about there the agricultural runoff. If if there's perhaps poor land management or agricultural practices, is that the most problematic issue for a healthy river, or are there others that are equally important? What are those hazards that that are causing our rivers to be less healthy there's lots of impacts upon a river you I mean obviously um i think it was tony juniper a few years ago who sort of said if you can get the land right you'll get the get the water right and i'm sort of paraphrasing that quote but it's sort of quite critical to show that as you say with land management if you don't look after that element properly you can end up with soil erosion so if in between cropping if you don't put a cover crop in and you get a bad weather event that can cause a lot of soils to wash away the types of crops that have grown and how frequently they're grown on that land can alter the sort of carbon content of that soil so that can adjust how much water holding capacity that that that, that sort of substrate has that can be problematic within itself so if a field system could hold X amount of water 10 years ago, and it's been degraded and degraded and degraded because of overcropping, that field system now will hold a percentile less than what it used to be able to. So that immediately means that that additional water is getting into the river system quicker. So further downstream, that can go back to one of those three legs that I was talking about regarding water quantity and can have an impact. And that's just from how a field's been managed over the previous 10 years. That's just the way that field's being cropped or the land management on it. Similar things can happen if cattle are on a field, they can cause compaction just below the surface. So although the soil might be absolutely fantastic for holding and retaining moisture, within six to 12 inches within that soil layer, you get this band of compaction, which is effectively like you might like if you imagine you put a ground sheet below the surface of the soil when that water permeates through that that first sort of six to 12 inches it hits that ground sheet and then it's rushing off down into the into the catchment then and obviously within that upper part you can get a lot of animal waste that might also be taken into the river so very recently um as in i think it was yesterday uh, the river y was just downgraded and one of the reasons um, was it not not achieving a good ecological status on the river? And one of the things for that was farm waste sort of coming into the river from poultry farms. Um, so that's just the land management element of how it's done with crops and um, with, with crop or animal. You've then got obviously pesticide usage and herbicides, which can cause obviously lasting impacts within watercourses. And that then probably encompasses farm use. In addition to that, you've got other things such as urbanisation, so hard standing surfaces can cause excess stuff coming in. Road water runoff can have horrendously damaging chemicals within them from vehicles, hydrocarbons. You can imagine all the, the sort of nuanced chemicals that are used within brakes and, and sort of fluids, all the washing of vehicles that happen and all of those soaps that come in. Um, so road, road water runoff can be a bad one. and then. Another one would be misconnections. Um, so whenever homes are plumbed in inappropriately, you can have 
toilets that have been connected to rainwater drains. Um, a common one will be dishwashers or sinks. So if you have a small extension off the back of the property and the, the kitchen's been extended, it's not necessarily done on purpose, but the wastewater pipe will be put into the rainwater drain and not the waste pipe. You get enough of those misconnections happening on a, on a landscape and um, it can start to have quite a, a, a sort of profound impact on water quality. And then finally, the big one that everybody's aware of at the moment is um, is sewerage and and sort of sort of how water companies and wastewater treatment facilities are doing either permitted or unpermitted discharges into the system. They're two very different things. So, uh, permitted discharge is generally under high volumes of rain coming into what we can call a combined sewer system. So as that rain comes into the into the, the sewerage sort of pipe network, it's sort of like it's it's hard to explain when you're on a podcast, but if you imagine sort of like two rainwater gutters um, and one sits slightly higher than the other, and that's within one pipe network. However, when the rainwater fills up enough, it mixes with that sewerage, which is then taken to the, the treatment works. And because they get that excess amount of rainwater coming down the system, they're then overloaded and their option is either to allow that to back up into people's homes or that at that point they're allowed to do what is called a permitted discharge and allow that waste into the river, which is obviously not ideal. But for health reasons in people's homes, you can understand at the moment why that's allowed because of the lack of upgraded infrastructure. And then the second type of discharge is an unpermitted discharge and this is the one that's obviously more concerning where sewerage companies have been identified to be making these releases at times when there's not been that recorded rain event uh, which would allow them to do it as a, a permitted discharge so yeah that, that's quite a, a long list uh, and i mean and within that i covered road runoff farming whether that's uh, cattle or agriculture and then sewerage just trying to think if there's any others climate change is another big one caroline it's um obviously we're getting more sporadic weather and so it's that sort of if you have that ability for the ground to become wetted it actually allows it to absorb water more effectively so the, the sort of that rain that lands can then just dissipate in a bit better if you end up with a couple of weeks of really, really dry weather, that land hardens off. And then effectively it's like having that other hard surface, like what you get in an urban area. So you get really fast flash flooding into the river channel. And so that can be an issue with this sort of increased climate change. And, and, and a lot of people, I suppose it's something that's probably missed quite frequently, but with that changing climate, you get these sort of long extended sunny spells and that can actually cause quite an issue within the river channel because um, it raises the temperature of the water. So if you think of our British fre freshwater species, they're, they're, they're cold freshwater species that, you know, they need a temperature in the river channel that's sort of sitting around, and you know, any anywhere from that sort of like 10, 12 degree mark up to sort of 16 to 18 degrees at the, at the sort of upper limit. Um, and with some of these hot weather events that we're having, our rivers are recording temperatures into the 20s plus. 
and and that's obviously outside of the the sort of survivability of our of our species. So unless they can find deep pools which stay cool at the bottom, or areas which are lined with trees and are well shaded, um, it it can lead to these these sorts of species. Well, basically declining, which could be one of the contributing factors to salmon um, decline. Anyway, I'll stop waffling. <laughs> you're not waffling. It's you're absolutely packed full of really good information there, and wow, it's quite a lot of hazards <laughs> going on for those rivers. What does that actually mean for the current state of the Severn River at the minute? Are all those things impacting it all the time? Is it? Is it in generally good nick? How is it? How's the? Because that looks like a really bad picture. How is it actually on the ground, the river itself at the moment? It varies in 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 true on in true sort of honesty to you, Caroline. As in, I do a lot of work in the urban area, so I notice a lot of those impacts, such as hard standing, a real increase in one that I started noticing in an awful lot of drives and gardens are either going into from being a grass drive that somebody has to maintain into a tarmac drive and an astroturf garden at the back. So that's sort of compounding and increasing those issues of flash flooding coming into the system, as well as urban creep. So there's obviously a massive housing demand crisis at the moment. So seeing huge areas, five, six, seven hundred homes at a time being built. And in some instances, there's not effective planning on how to manage that additional water and hold it within the landscape. So it just gets added into the river. Not all occasions, but some occasions. That's within the urban context. You go into a sort of rural area where you've got those sort of farming issues. Obviously, farmers are, are striving to make a living at the moment, so they need to make that land as productive as possible and get crops rotation happening so field systems aren't necessarily resting. So those issues I was referring to about soil becoming degraded and potentially not resting a, uh, resting a system and allowing that sort of vital carbon content to be re-established or like crop rotations results in more soil erosion, compaction and those those issues entering into the into the river system. I suppose they're sort of like nested. So obviously in the urban area, that's there. And then obviously in the, the sort of rural areas, you get those those additional issues going on. And it, and it can be as simple as, as well as like, it's very, very useful to have a, a buffer strip on the sides of rivers. So having where the water laps against the bank side, we have... In a lot of instances, it can be as little as one to two metres of space between that water's edge or potentially even there's no fencing alongside that watercourse and cattle could get down into the watercourse. They cause a lot of poaching. They can damage all of the bankside vegetation. Uh, obviously, um, when they go to the loo, it goes straight into the river. Um, if that's a focus point on the river channel, it can cause a pollution bottleneck as we would call it. So you might have healthy water upstream and once it's dissipated downstream, it becomes healthy again. But that pollution zone in the middle means that species then can't move or pour down um, river. So that's um, that can be another, another sort of issue in that sense. The health of the rivers in overall, and they're not brilliant, but they're 
also, I think, still clinging on okay. There's a lot of hope. I don't think they're destined for doom, but we do need to change a few key practices and make space for rivers. And our, our vision of a river has changed quite dramatically. So back sort of in the, the sort of um, late 60s and 70s, a lot of rivers were dredged, straightened and marginalised to allow more space, you know, for land. If you think of down on the Somerset levels, it was get that land as productive as possible and move the water away as quickly as possible and to try and, and, and sort of visions on how to reduce flooding was very similar. It was like, oh, if we can get that water away from A to B as quickly as possible, that'll mean that we're not done a flood. Um, that's not necessarily the case, actually. You want to slow water down in certain areas, potentially speed it up in other areas, but having a functional habitat is actually better for flood resilience and allowing that river to have a little bit of space. So in terms of, I suppose, how how rivers are, if we, if we could allow them to reconnect to that floodplain a little bit more and, you know, okay, that might require the odd field system to be sacrificed for flooding. Obviously, that's, that's difficult if you're the landowner that owns that field and you have to potentially lose a crop or all the rest of it. And, that's, and I suppose that's where that conflict of interest comes in and, and where sort of discussions with landowners and changing use and understanding the, how the system works. So like historically in the medieval days, floodplain meadows, because they got that wash of rich nutrient soil over them when a river flooded, um, it made that meadow very, very productive in a prized patch of land. Whereas now they're not used in that sense because an awful lot of meadow habitats lost one in itself, but also, and floodplain meadows very much so, but also if that land's used as a, an agricultural crop instead, it can be a complete loss and actually the flooding's not a benefit at all. And so that's where sort of our staff and land, you know, sort of uh, farm advisors can really help get out on the ground and, and discuss these key critical issues and, and hopefully change perspective on management practice. So I'm guessing from what you're saying there, well, I mean, it's quite a complicated picture. We've obviously been messing around with rivers and messing around on the sides of rivers and making everything so much worse. Um, <laughs> however, you said that there's hope and you talked about these farm advisors. Where is the where are the solutions for this? Because there are lots of different places where that, that, that the problems occur. Where do you put the emphasis? Because you're a trust at the, at the end of the day. How can you influence change with the most impact? How, how does that happen? There's a, there's a number of ways, really. Effective communication is the, is the sort of start, trying to change people's views on how that land is used. But then we also have sort of like working groups that we call cabbers that are the catchment-based approach. Um, so that brings a lot of interested parties within a catchment together to sort of facilitate change. It's a little bit like a, um, a farm cluster group but for a catchment base and farm cluster groups themselves, they'll be invited onto the sort of steering group of the CABA or that catchment-based approach. And it will be very much, we'll table a discussion point about we think this could uh, do with slight alteration to help the river system, 
and then obviously they'll come back with concerns and you work together to sort of work around those. At a more policy level, there's quite a lot of change happening post-Brexit in terms of subsidies that farmers receive, such as the Environmental Land Management Scheme or ELMS that's coming into practice, um, rural payments agency, higher level stewardship, all of these things are in change and flux at the moment. So there is a really good opportunity to make a positive change. Those those sorts of changes come at the Rivers Trust level, which is sort of the overarching umbrella organisations there. You know, that's where the key uh, political campaign drivers uh, emanate from. And then obviously as the seven rivers trust delivering on that sort of landscape scale um we we sort of disseminate that information and work with the individual landowners to make it as functional as possible that sounds like you're covering big picture policy and also at the micro sort of micro end talking with individual landowners how receptive do you find or does the seven rivers trust find those interactions with landowners and farmers are they receptive to talking about because that's tricky isn't it because as you rightly say they're trying to they're trying to earn a living off the land are they aware of the issues and are they happy to talk about how things they they can impact themselves i'd like to say on the most part that they're they're aware of the issues you know they you know all uh, all these people who work the land they're very in tune with it what, what I would say is there's certain things that we can facilitate broader learning on. So particularly around soil carbon, soil testing, going on to, you know, if we if we can, this is going to get a bit technical here, Caroline, I apologise. But if you can go on to a landowner's land, take some samples of the soil, go away, analyse it all, come back to that landowner and say, if we can increase your carbon content within that field, we can reduce the wilting point of your crop. You will effectively make both the land better for the actual, the river and all of those processes we talked about earlier, but also you'll actually make that land more productive for the farmer. And so that might include removing compaction. It could be that sort of uh, carbon sort of sequestration in the soil, um, which is obviously a big thing in with regards to climate change as well. So it's all positive and in the right direction. But as, as you say, it's like you need a lot more people to sort of uh, get that message out on the ground. I, I, I sort of feel it's getting farmers to have those conversations. And so in, in, in some instances, Farmers are very tuned in and aware that they need to make alterations. And they might, I suppose a key one can be as well, is whether they're the farm that own the land or whether they're a tenant farmer. That can be quite different on if they have to pay a fee for the land on top of get, you know, a small margin of profit for the products that they're selling. That can be a very, very fine margin. If the, if the farmer owns that parcel of land and they get a bigger margin of profit, that can it gives them more room to trial different things or not be as reliant on some of these subsidy schemes. That's quite key. I can see how that, that would, would have 
or, you know, it will impact how you that conversation goes. I, I do like the idea, though, that effectively, if you can get the message across that the soil and the land, if we can revitalize that, make it as good as it can get, it benefits everything, doesn't it? Uh, from, the, from the crop yield or from quality of the grass or ruminants that are grazing to, to, your, to your river quality. Where so far within the scope of the seven, have you seen wins in terms of the impact on the quality? Are there success stories already coming through where you've had that those sorts of progressive conversations? Yeah, there's some. I mean, there's some fantastic stories. Key ones being where we have worked with farmers regarding soil carbon. They have reported that they've had better yields. Those are great case studies for us because we can take those to other farmers and sort of bring those positive messages. You mean that that key one as well about soil holding more water. Obviously, last year in 2022, we had a really, really dry summer and people were struggling. Uh, you know, the ri rivers were on their bones, as we like to say, well, not like to say, but we say, uh, meaning there was a, a real lack of water in there. So sort of areas of bedrock were showing up and rivers were becoming completely disconnected. But yeah, and then we that that sort of resilience that we can offer to a farmer by improve, improving the, their land is really vitally important. So those, those are really good success stories. Other examples of where we've had success stories is working with farmers to improve stock fencing, so keeping cattle out of rivers, so providing that buffer strip um, that can sort of help filter water when it's coming off the land uh, before it gets into the river. Um, it also gives that little bit of a, a wider riparian corridor, taking it right back to what we talked about at the start of the, at the start of our chat, and that's that's quite important for giving that little bit of space for nature and allowing those wild processes to happen along the river. So it might be allowing trees to start growing along that buffer strip. That can also happen right in the, the sort of north of the catchment. Some of my colleagues are working with landowners at fencing off complete sort of valleys and allowing those areas to completely rewood and re-naturalise. That does a number of things from obviously helping shade that really shallow water to help reduce that temperature impact, but also slowing that water from initially getting into the channel off that those sort of upland areas. So those, those are some really good success stories. Slightly different to those success stories though, Caroline, is that we do quite a bit of work in channel as well. We're removing some of those impacts that humans have had on the, on the river channel. And I'd, I'd kick myself if I didn't mention it whilst we were talking, but working on barriers in, in river channels. Um, so a, a barrier in a channel can be anything from an old sort of millrace structure or a, a lot of times in urban areas, it could be a ford going uh, where the river goes over where a car can drive through. Um, because what tends to happen is that solid hard standing results in a little waterfall off the end. Um, so that creates anything the way you have a little waterfall um, can be quite problematic for species trying to migrate back up the channel. That sort of classic image of a salmon taking a, a beautiful leap over a weir is not ideal for the salmon um, because obviously as a fish, they stop eating when they're out at sea. So if, pe if people are not aware, salmon have a life cycle where they they spawn in fresh water, but they live out at sea. 
and then when they're ready to respawn, they come back um, to their river where they were where they were born. And um, effectively, they're a battery once they leave the ocean, and they've only got so much energy for that spawning effort. So if they have to cross a hundred man-made features, they can be exhausted before they get to where they can effectively spawn. So this can be one of the issues which could be contributing to declining species such as Atlantic salmon. But a salmon is a really big and powerful fish and can commonly jump over a lot of those barriers. We have an awful lot of fish species within our, in a, within our British rivers that haven't got that capability to jump those barriers. And when that occurs, they get trapped within these sort of pool sections between either two barriers or um, they might migrate. So, for instance, eels, they live all their life in freshwater, but then when they go to spawn, they leave and go to the Sargasso Sea. When, they're, when the juvenile eels come back, which is a fantastic migration, but when they do that sort of three to three and a half thousand mile, mile migration back from the Sargasso Sea, I find it slightly ironic that they've gone that far and then the first thing they do is get stuck against a tiny brick wall, a barrier that the humans put across a river. It's it's very um, frustrating because I personally would like to see those rivers re-naturalised, reconnected. That longitudinal, which you know, lengthways connectivity is really important to help some of these species bounce back. And that's what I spend a lot of my time doing is... Um, a little bit keyboard warrior-esque, but sort of having to uh, communicate with the environment agency, landowners, bringing contractors in on board, developing programmes, applying for funding, all to get money to help tackle those sort of key things, so particularly barriers in the channel. Yeah. Those barriers, can we get rid of those barriers quite easily? Uh, what do we need them? Why why, why we put them in there? <laughs> yeah, it's a really good it's a really good question. Some of them can probably go. Whether I mean, and, and this is where it becomes a political hot potato. Um, there are a number of barriers in channels which um, have now got weirs trusts that look after them. So they they actually feel like they're a heritage element of a of a, of a town or a city, which I can understand but obviously they fragment that habitat. So that's where it becomes a, you might not be able to remove the barrier, but what you'll be able to do is mitigate that barrier. So put in a technical fish passage solution. Another key example of that would be on the main River Severn, there's a number of barriers and weir locks that were put back, which were put in, I think, in the, around the, the mid 1800s and they were put in as navigational weirs so what they do is they it's what we call impounding so it goes across the river channel all the water backs up behind it before it flows over the top but that backed up water makes the river deeper upstream and that means that you can navigate that section of the river with a boat without your boat bottoming out can we remove those barriers now yes we probably could with the hundreds of thousands of people living on the banks of the River Severn who've got a, a nice boat, you know, their whole business and infrastructure is built off it, would they be happy with it? No. So our solution is to mitigate that barrier. There was a fantastic project called Unlocking the Severn that was run between the Severn Rivers Trust, uh, the Canellan Rivers Trust and the Environment Agency. 
funded through Lottery, European Union. It was a huge project um, to the tune of about £27 million to open up the River Severn. Um, and that's now done. And if people can go and they can go and look at those weirs, there's fantastic information there. And at Digless, there's even a viewing station where you can go underground. And there's a bit like being at the Sea Life Centre. There's a huge glass window that you can look through and you can see the fish that are using that fish passage to go up and down, up and down stream. So it's a you know brilliant initiative. And I'd advise anybody to go have a look, really. It's actually quite quite exciting sat in that room waiting for a a wild fish to come past. I I can see how, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. I hadn't appreciated all those intricacies regarding fish trying to get in, trying to get out, (laughs) and trying to just, as you say, they've made, they can travel such distances and they get to our lands and it's like, oh my goodness, we've managed to really make it difficult for them. I could absolutely talk to you for another hour easily <laughs> uh, but i am aware that we are running out of time you've covered so many interesting aspects of why a river is important and what the hazards are and how you're trying as part of the team and many other teams within the uk to to, to mitigate that seems to be the word of the moment final question what is your thoughts and feelings for the future of rivers in the uk Oh gosh, that's a broad one, considering we now know how wide the topic is. I would like to see more focus coming on to road runoff um, because and sort of how we slow water down from hard hard standing landscapes. I, I feel with it's all it's all good pol- it's all good policy that needs to happen and it can all come from a top down and filter filter from the government effectively if 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 the correct decisions were made on how land use is done in farmlands and you know the line was towed so to speak by all parties that would mind the pun all trickle down into the river and and have positive effects there regarding sewage obviously people want to see great change there but if people could just refrain from putting plastics down toilets and and other things that really shouldn't be going down a toilet when that sewage is released into the environment it will have less of an impact um so we always say pee poo and paper the three p's are the only things that should go into a toilet things like baby wipes that are designed not to break down even if they're the biodegradable ones they're still designed to be resistant to falling apart so they clog up sewer networks that's a really key sort of thing that people as an individual at home can make a difference with. Making sure misconnections are correct. If it was possible to have policy from above that stated every time a home was sold, uh, it needed to have, say, something like a connections licence that showed that the house was connected properly. Instantly across the UK, you've solved every misconnection. It just needs to come from above. Regarding road water, if we could intercept road water runoff and even have it going through SUD systems, which is uh, stands for sustainable urban drainage. We can intercept some of those harmful chemicals that come off cars and hydrocarbons uh, and stop them getting into our water courses. That would be really beneficial. Yeah, so there's there's a whole there's a whole host and it can in honestly it can go on forever, but it's 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 that element of if if I can think it and I just work 
there's one lonely person in an urban area across the catchment. There's got to be people at higher levels that can just make that positive impact and change and other people will, will sort of follow the follow the line. But yeah, I think, um, you know, it's, if people could just even do simple things like having additional water butts on the house, you imagine where, where I work, there's roughly in, in even just within uh, I work around the Dudley region in the in the Black Country, and there's around seven hundred thousand homes there. If you could imagine every one of those homes had water butt on the front and back of their house, when a rain event happens, not only are they creating sort of more resilience to water in their garden and and helping reduce issues in times of drought, but when you have that flash floody effect that's causing such damage within the urban river, that could be mitigated just through capturing a bit of that hard standing water. It's a simple thing, but you just, you know, some of these simple things get missed. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you've talked about a range of things within that hopeful picture of a future in that we know we not we know not a lot of the solutions and some of them are we can all get a handle on and some of them require policy but there is lots to be had there isn't there we, we, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of scope for getting it right <laughs> so yeah if, if everybody used a more sustainable soap for washing their car if you think all that water goes straight into the road drain and all road drains lead to the river and all rivers lead to the sea so it's like even just simple things like litter if people could stop dropping litter just it sounds so simple but that litter gets washed into a road drain that road drain goes straight into a river yes it's, um, yeah it's it's doable <laughs> it's, yeah. it, it's people it, it, right it is <laughs> it's definitely yeah. people yeah it, that's been fantastic there is so much within our conversation that i will reflect on uh thank you so much tom for all of that and I look forward to hearing more success stories from the trust that you work with. So yeah, carry on your good work, Tom. Thanks a lot. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Water is essential for all life and our waterways need to be healthy. I am super grateful to Tom for giving a fascinating insight into the importance of our rivers, the current threats to their health and the essential work being undertaken to put things right. For me, this conversation highlighted the complexity of river health and the enormity of the task at hand. Thank goodness for the amazing work the Rivers Trust organisation is doing. As individual citizens, we can all do our bit too, by being mindful of what we throw in the toilet, what surfaces we put down in our gardens, and voicing our concerns to policymakers. To find out more about the projects going on at the Seven Rivers Trust and the wider network, take a look at the show notes. In producing this episode, I'd like to thank Andy Shaw for audio editing, Jeremy Jones for providing the music, and to you for listening. Don't forget you can follow the podcast to get automatic access to each new episode. And it would be lovely if you could rate, review and share it too. It really helps. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>